My name is Veronica Kim, and you are now listening to Unity in Christ. There have been many reports of ISIS causing terror in different parts of the world. We were able to see the extent of how evil they were when they began to buy and sell teenage girls on Facebook. My heart fell when I heard that many of these girls became sex slaves to the men in ISIS. A while back, I came across an article about a young girl that fled her life as a sex slave of ISIS. The 18-year-old girl in the article was Lamia Aji Bashar from Yazidi, Iraq. In August of 2014, ISIS attacked the region where Lamia was living and killed all the men and forcefully captured all the women and children. Since then, Lamia has been suffering under the rule of ISIS until she was able to escape in March of 2016. However, as she was running to the border with the ISIS fighters in pursuit, a landmine exploded and left Lamia blind in her right eye, and the explosion caused the skin to melt, scarring her face. I was disheartened to read that she had lost sight in one of her eyes, but I was so surprised to read what she said during the interview. Even after losing sight in one of her eyes, she said, Even if I had lost both eyes, it would have been worth it because I have survived them. She meant that it was far better to lose both of her eyes and live freely than to stay as a sex slave under ISIS. She believes that losing the sight in one of her eyes was worth her having the freedom that she has now. We will continue this discussion after the first song. Got a strength 
18-year-old Lamia has lost vision in one eye and has scars on her face as a result of the skin melting while escaping from the hard life as a sex slave of ISIS. I was able to think of what Jesus told us as I read Lamia say that she would have given both of her eyes to receive the freedom that she has from ISIS. Matthew chapter 5 verses 29 and 30 say, If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. How seriously do all of you take Jesus' words in these verses? To be honest, I did not take these words too seriously. I just understood what a scary place hell is symbolically from the description given in the Bible. But after reading the article about Lamia, I was able to understand this verse more fully and more realistically than I did before. How would have I reacted if I was in Lamia's shoes? Would I have wanted to escape ISIS, knowing that I would lose sight in my eye? Would I have believed that it was worth my freedom? And after escaping the hard life under the rule of ISIS, would I have been able to say, even if I had lost both eyes, it would have been worth it? I probably wouldn't be able to say with conviction that it would be worth it before I had escaped but after fleeing, I'm sure that I would be able to say that it was worth my freedom, just like Lamia did. After thinking about it, I agree that it would be worth losing my sight, rather than living as a sex slave under ISIS. As Jesus told all of us, it is better for you to lose one of your body parts, be it your eyes or your right hand, than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. It is better to give up your body part and go into heaven. Jesus, friend of sinners, we have strayed so far away. We cut down people in your name But the sword was never ours to swing Jesus, friend of sinners The truth's become so hard to see The world is on their way to you But they're tripping over me Always looking around but never looking up I'm so double-minded a plank-eyed saint with dirty hands and a heart divided Oh Jesus, friend of sinners Open our eyes to the world at the end of our pointing fingers Let our hearts be led by mercy Help us reach with open hearts and open doors Oh Jesus, friend of sinners Break 
Coming up next is sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is the Gospel and Manhood, Part One, based on Psalm chapter 128. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. It's obvious in our culture today and in the church today that the picture of family is not quite as clean cut as singleness, marriage, parenting, children. There are so many different situations represented in the culture and in church where this is blending together. And there's no question that the adversary is attacking the biblical picture of family that we see here. Tonight, though, is Father's Day, and so we're going to look at the gospel and manhood. You know, it's interesting, in some of the conversations I've had with folks this last week, it almost seems like some guys have been kind of bracing for today, almost a little anxious, a little nervous about what's coming. Talked to one wife who is actually not here, wasn't going to be here today, but she had told her husband that she really wanted to be there next to him when he got it today, and so... <laughs> If there's any kind of nervousness or anxiousness in your lives, men, I I want to kind of relieve that a little bit from the beginning. We're actually going to do something a little different tonight. You see in your your notes, there's a blank sheet there. Every week, we dive into a pretty thick study of the Word, and I think that's a good thing to do. I think that our worship needs to revolve around the Word, and we need to fill our minds with truth from the Word, and that's what we do in worship. But the danger is that we can get caught up and filling our mind with all of these truths that we bypass the heart in the process. And we fail to let those truths really soak into our lives and really apply to our lives. And so I'd like to take a step back, so to speak, from an intense, kind of heady sort of message, and I'd like to share a little bit more of a heart message, so to speak. Now, that's not to say there won't be truths to write down. In fact, I'm about to walk through, we're gonna see seven truths, and so you all, Write those down if you'd like to, but what I want to do is something very different. particular psalm, I've only preached from one time before. It was four years ago at my dad's funeral. And what I'd like to do tonight is I would like to take this psalm and the richness of it, and I'd like to bring in some experiences that I've had with my dad in order to help us to understand the gospel, and manhood. My purpose tonight is really threefold. Number one, I want to be obedient to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, which says to honor your father and mother, honor your parents. And as your pastor, I want to honor my dad before you tonight. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. We talked about kids, honor your parents. This is what I want to do tonight. I want to honor my dad Secondly, along with that, I want to honor him in such a way that men and husbands and fathers in this room will be encouraged and challenged to live lives that are worthy of such honor from your children and from your wives, from the people around you. I hope that this picture in Psalm 128 and some of the things I share about my dad will spur you on as a man, as a husband, as a father toward Christ. And that's the ultimate goal. Third, our heavenly father, we get great glory in the honor I give to my father here on earth and the way we encourage and challenge one another with this text. 
Our Heavenly Father, we get great glory in men and husbands and fathers that are raised up all around this room who are being used by him to accomplish the Great Commission. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to dive into Psalm 128, and I want, us to, I want to bring in some experiences from my dad in the process. Psalm 128, verse 1. Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in his ways. You will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessings and prosperity will be yours. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your sons will be like olive shoots around your table. Thus is the man blessed who fears the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion all the days of your life. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem. May you live to see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. I had to laugh last night. When Heather and I got in town, we had been traveling for 10 hours yesterday with our two precious yet fairly cranky kids at that point. And we were trying to get adjusted, trying to get unpacked and everything. And after we did that, I sat down, I was looking over Psalm 128 and it was, it was almost humorous. It was then I came to the realization that the author of Psalm 128 most likely did not have a two-year-old and a six-month-old. Not that he wouldn't say these things, but he might not say them in the exact same way. I think if I were to rewrite Psalm 128, which I'm not in any way uh, assuming to have authority to rewrite scripture, if it were in my hands to write Psalm 128 last night, I'd have, I'd have changed it around a little bit. It might sound a little more like this, and you might follow along and see just a couple of little changes. Uh, I'd start, blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in his ways. And this word is starting to change up a little bit. You will eat the food you can pick up as quickly as possible from a takeout restaurant. Nausea and heartburn will be yours. Your wife will be like a tired, weary, and stressed out vine running around the house. Your sons will be like olive shoots around your table. No, wait. Actually, the only thing shooting around your table will be your oldest son's food flying from his hand across the table and your youngest son's food as he sneezes sweet potatoes out of his nose and mouth directly into your face while your mouth is open. <laughs> Thus is the man blessed who fears the Lord. That's how I would, I would kind of rewrite it if it were up to me. In all seriousness, the picture here in Psalm 128 is kind of like a family road trip. It's a part of a series of psalms that are called Psalms of Ascent, which are psalms that were sung or recited when people would travel to Jerusalem. They would travel to Jerusalem to worship there, which we'll talk about later. They would recite these psalms or sing these psalms. Psalm 128, 127, and 128 really kind of go together. Psalm 128 lays the foundation for God and the home. And then Psalm 128 really is one of the clearest and simplest pictures of God's desire for the home. What's interesting is, five years ago this week, I received an email from my dad. Heather and I had given him a gift for Father's Day and expressed to him our appreciation to him. And he sent back a short email. I want to read part of it to you. What's really interesting is, unknowingly, this email almost perfectly parallels the picture here in Psalm 128. Here's what my dad wrote to me. He said, David, the best part about being a father is that I have the best wife and mother of my children. You children have made both mom and I as proud as any parents could be. If you had not noticed, your love for us has kept us totally involved in your lives. We are sorry if we have at times gone overboard, but your love is so contagious that we cannot help ourselves. I cannot think of another family I would trade for. God has been so good to our family. 
That is Psalm 128 in a nutshell. And what I'd like to do is take seven truths that my dad entrusted to me, and they're all grounded here in Psalm 128, and I'd like to take a few moments to pass them on to you tonight. Truth number one, the favor of God is found in the fear of God. The favor of God is found in the fear of God. I think it would be uh, most appropriate for me to start by introducing you to my dad, Tom Platt. And so I'm going to show a, a picture up here on the screen. Actually, I'm the guy on the left in this picture. And I think I was 22, 23. This was when my older brother was getting married. And that is Tom Platt on the right. My dad, originally from New Jersey, Florida area, and went to Florida State University where he got a master's in business and met my mom. And they quickly after that moved to Atlanta where they began their newly married life in Atlanta. He began working as an auditor with the federal government. He wasn't like the IRS kind. Not that IRS people aren't great, but... <laughs> I always kind of give that caveat. Whenever I say he was an auditor with the government, people are like, oh, he's one of those guys. Well, he's kind of one of those guys, but not one of those guys. So he was an auditor for the federal government, and he excelled at his work. But what was most important was my dad's work. He was born again at a very young age. One of the treasures that we have is a little photo card from a worship service at Calvary Baptist Church in Clearwater, Florida, and it had his picture on it as a part of leading in worship as a teenager that day. My dad walked with God, and he worshiped God. In fact, if he were worshiping God in this room, you, if you were anywhere near dad, you would know where he was. He loved to sing, and he loved to sing loud, sometimes obnoxiously loud. You'd be standing next to him, and everybody would be looking at you and your dad. You're like, why is he singing so loud? It would just be embarrassing. It's like, just fix your eyes on God. Just worship God. <laughs> Whether or not you're singing loud or not, if you were in the Platt family on a Sunday-by-Sunday -Sunday basis, you were definitely worshiping God. Without fail, it's where we were. The picture is of a dad, and this is so key. We know this as parents. We've seen this as husbands and wives. As parents, as husbands and wives, we reflect the character of God and the positions God entrusts to us. And I want you to think with me about how a father's love and a father's leadership of his children has a radical effect on children's worship of their heavenly father. I want you to follow with me here. I had a definite level of fear for my dad. Corporal punishment was not uh, a common practice around our house, but when it was practiced, it was memorable. There were, there were those times, and, and many, 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 many years later, we would look back and laugh, not at the time, but look back and laugh at those particular times. And so there was, there was a definite sense of fear there. It wasn't because in any way my dad ever disciplined me inappropriately. But there's no question, I knew my dad was serious about obedience. Now obviously, growing up, middle school, high school, and eventually college, picture of corporal punishment faded out of the picture, but fear did not. Instead, fear of dad became deeper. It was no longer a superficial fear of getting a spanking. Now, it was a fear of disobeying 
displeasing, dishonoring my dad in any way, doing anything that would offend my dad. Now that was the fear. Now I want you to think about how that translates into our worship of God, particularly in the context of this passage. Where does it start? Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who fear the Lord. Do you think that means that we tremble before God afraid of his punishment? I think in some sense that's exactly what this means. Scripture gives us much reason to tremble before the punishment of God apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, and this is where it begins, this is where any person in this room is going to begin, must begin in a relationship with God. The trembling before him, realizing the depth of our sinfulness before a holy God and realizing punishment that we deserve. This is the starting point of our relationship with God is trembling before him and fear of punishment. Thankfully, that fear drives us to the cross. We find at the cross that Christ has satisfied the punishment of God, satisfied the wrath of God at the cross. That doesn't mean fear now leaves the picture. This fear gets deeper. And now it's a fear of dishonoring, displeasing, disobeying our God, doing anything that would bring offense to God. This is the kind of picture that the man of God is described as having in Psalm 128. When you get to blessed are all who fear the Lord in verse one, the translation really kind of skews it a little bit. It literally says blessed is everyone. All seems like it's kind of a plural pronoun. The pronoun is actually singular here. When you get to verse two, you will eat the fruit of your labor. It's talking about a man. You will, singular, eat the fruit of your labor. When you get to verse three, you know it's addressing the man in the home. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your sons will be like olive shoots. He says to men in Psalm 128, the scripture is saying, blessed is the man who fears the Lord. That word blessed, it's used four different times in this passage. It's actually two different words, though, in the original language of the Old Testament. The first two times we see it in verse 1 into verse 2, blessed, and you might even circle it and put a little line out to the side, it literally means happy. Happy are all who fear the Lord. You will eat the fruit of your labor. Happiness and prosperity will be yours. The second time, we see it, the third and fourth times, when you get to verse four, thus is the man blessed who fears the Lord. Verse five, may the Lord bless you from Zion. That word, different word in the original language of the Old Testament, literally means favored, to be favored by God. So the picture is, happy is the man who fears the Lord. The favor of God is found in the fear of God. These two concepts don't go together in our contemporary thinking, but they go together in biblical thinking. The Bible is saying very clearly, happy are the men in this room who tremble before the majesty of God. Favored before God are the men in this room who tremble at the thought of disobedience. This is the picture we've got in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, when it says we are perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. 1 Peter 1, living our lives here as strangers in reverent fear. And so I ask every man in this room, every husband in this room, and every father in this room, do you tremble before God? I mean, really, really, do you tremble before God? Do you shake in fear and awe at the thought of doing anything, thinking anything, saying anything that does not bring great glory to your God. Happy is the man who fears the Lord. The fear of God, the favor of God is found in the fear of God. Similarly, second truth, the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God is found in the word of God. The wisdom of God is found in the word of God. Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in his ways. 
You will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessings and prosperity will be yours. The picture here is in a man's walk and his man's work. They both revolve around God's ways. And his walk and his work, they revolve around God's ways. God's ways described in his word. We see this. Hold your place here and go back with me to the very beginning of Psalms. Look at Psalms chapter one. If you don't have this psalm committed to memory, I would encourage you to commit it to memory. Psalms 1 is such an incredible picture. Imagery is so strong here of what it means to walk in the ways of God. You'll see here a striking parallel between Psalm 28, verse 1 and 2, and Psalms chapter 1. Go to the very beginning of this book. Psalms chapter 1, listen to verse, we'll just read verses 1 through 3. Listen to this. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree, listen to the imagery here, planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit and seeds, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Same picture we're seeing over here in Psalm 28. Wisdom of God, found in the word of God, meditating on it day and night, and walking in it, immersing himself in it. These first two truths go together. We see it all over the Psalms. We see it in Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Another Psalm of Ascent says the same thing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. My dad was the wisest man I have ever met. He didn't just have knowledge. It was knowledge applied to life. It was wisdom. It was grounded in the Word. He read the Word. He studied the Word. It was just neat when I uh, went off to seminary. Dad got so excited because it was his opportunity to go to seminary vicariously through me. And so I first got down there. He's calling all the time. How's it going? What are you learning in class? Just tell me everything you're learning, this and that, this and that. He would come down to New Orleans and visit, and he would go to classes with me. I remember he wanted to go to a biblical geography class. I mean, guys are, are snoozing in this class, and Dad is sitting on the edge of his seat just soaking in this biblical geography stuff. For weeks after that, he's calling me up. Hey, you remember what the professor said about this? I was looking at this. And remember what the professor And I'm like, I don't, I don't remember. I was snoozing too, Dad, but, but he was there. I remember I uh, made the mistake, a mistake in a, in a small way here in one sense, but the mistake, I bought him a copy of my systematic theology textbook, and I sent it to him, gave it to him for a gift, Father's Day or Christmas or something like that, and thick volume, systematic theology, and so dad took it upon himself to start reading it just from cover to cover. What that meant is every time I called home, I was getting quizzed on my theological positions on everything. So Dave, what do you think about the atonement? What do you think about the nature of man, the nature of God, the Trinity? What do you think about the gifts of the Spirit? What about pneumatology or ecclesiology or angelology or eschatology? I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about yet, Dad. We haven't even gotten to that in class yet. And he's like, come on, Dave, you've got to figure these things out. I was like, can I just talk to Mom? Uh, (laughs) Soaking in the Word, diving in the Word enjoying the Word. And seminary was one part of the ball game. Preaching was in a whole other part. When I began preaching, anytime I was preaching anywhere near Atlanta, Dad would travel miles to go hear me preach and offer constructive feedback. And then he got into preaching vicariously through me. He 
would prepare sermons, study. And this was your tax dollars at work on some of those work days where he would, he would call me in the middle of the day and he would say, David, I've been studying this and this looks good. And he said, why don't you work this in there or there? I mean, it was basically, Dave, you go preach this and let me know how it goes. Just get back to me. And so this was the picture. This was the picture. Man, I want to remind you that you will struggle in vain to find a man who is used of God in this book who does not have the word of God flowing from him. You will not find a man in this book used mightily of God who is not gladly receiving the word of God, who is not wholeheartedly embracing the word of God, and who is not boldly reproducing the word of God. It's the picture of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. The word just flowed from him, gushed out of him, as a part of him. Now you realize these two truths, completely against the grain, go completely against what this world would say would make you a successful man, husband, or father. Psalm 128 is giving a picture of a man who is blessed by God. And it's not a picture of a man who is blessed by God with large houses and cars and much stuff. It's a man who fears God and who knows God in his word, who walks with God and worships God. Does the word flow from you? The wisdom of God is found in the word of God.
This is for those of you that would like to raise your children instilling God's values and His words into their lives. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries can send you CDs of our children's program. The program includes Let's Read the Bible, Praise Time, Pray Time, and Story Time. If any of you are interested in the program, please contact the office or email us to receive the CD. I hope that this program can spread out through our English speaking children. Our office number is 602 866 8999, and email address is heartandsoul.orgmail.com. Following is a program called If Anyone Wishes to Come After Me. Hello, listeners. This is Brian Winston, your host of the series If Anyone Wishes to Come After Me. During our last session, We shared in John chapter 6 the possibility that we could give up on our decision to follow Jesus and go back to our original position. We also shared that he let his disciples leave Jesus. And I asked, if you had been a disciple of Jesus, when he looked up at his disciples and asked if they would leave as well, what might have your answer been? Have you thought about the answer to this question? I hope your answer was the same as Peter's. Lord, Where do we have to go as the word of life is in the Lord? That's right. There is no life without Jesus Christ. We can't find life elsewhere. In John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus said to the Jewish believers, So, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. What did he say to do if we want to become a true disciple of his? That's right. He says we become a true disciple of Jesus when we continue in his word. What does that mean to continue in his word? What can we do in order to remain in his word? The Greek word meno means stay or to remain. To stay or meno means being visible to others. For example, people who stay in place while others are moving are noticeable to others because they do not move and keep the pace. People are noticeable when they stay while others are leaving. This meaning also applies to the idea of dwelling on the words of Jesus. When others do not listen to Jesus, when they did not do what they were asked to do, and when they did what they were told not to do, they who dwelled on the words of Jesus were noticeable because they were listening and doing what they were asked to do. However, this was not intended to represent the hypocrite who acted to be noticed by the public the one who wanted to be noticeable on the outside, even though he would not act like that on the inside. But a true disciple of Jesus will be noticeable, not because of acting in the public eye, but because he dwells on the words of Jesus. Such a person is said to be a true disciple, not leaving the words of Jesus, believing the word, obeying, and following the word. That's the life of a disciple of Jesus. The life of a disciple of Jesus 
is to dwell on his words. But Jesus said one more thing about this. In John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. How do people know we are disciples of Jesus? According to these words of Jesus, it's because we love one another. By the way, how do we love one another? This is very important. In the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, God told us to love our neighbor as ourselves. If we love our neighbor as ourselves, we are showing really a great love. However, Jesus is not satisfied with this love and raises the level of love one step further. It is not enough to love your neighbor as yourself. He went a step further and said to love one another as he has loved us. How did Jesus love his disciples? I hope that you would not simply speak your answer. Please think about the love of Jesus before you speak. Consider, before he left, Jesus was the role model for his disciples, showing them how to live their lives. Let's think about it again based on last week's sharing. How was Jesus a role model? And what did Jesus say? Jesus said, If anyone wishes to come after him, they must deny themselves and take up their cross. He said that we would have to go through the narrow gate and walk the narrow path, and that we should do the will of God the Father. And Jesus actually became a role model and showed us how to do these things. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God and emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. He denied himself as the creator being to his creature. He did not say that I am or who am I to become a man. He who came in the likeness of the creature went down a narrow path through the narrow gate. He went to the narrow and rugged way to offer and return glory to God. He did not take the easy way and get his own glory from the public. He did not even turn a stone into bread, and he did not show us his skills to jump off the pinnacle of the temple. Even in his hunger, he showed that man does not live by bread alone. He chose the way of the cross, even though in Gethsemane he prayed to the Father and asked, If he was willing to please remove this cup, still, he confessed, yet not my will, but yours be done. He loved his disciples by going all this way. It was not that one day he suddenly decided to die and died with his eyes closed. He was preparing day by day to give his life for the disciples. When Jesus said to love one another as he has loved us, he did not simply mean that you love to the point of giving your life to the point of dying. He meant that you are to live for one another. Jesus never lived for himself. He lived for the will of the Father and for the neighbor. He showed what he lived for when he told to his disciples, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. How do you understand the words of Jesus? Do you think he only told his disciples who were at the Last Supper that day? No, as I mentioned before, disciples must be like their mentor. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Jesus said, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you must follow the word of Jesus. Do we really see the images of the disciples of Jesus in the generation in which we are living? What is discipleship? Is being a disciple just studying biblical doctrine? 
Jesus did not say that. Jesus told the disciples to abide in the word of Jesus and love one another as he loved us. So why is the church collapsing? Is the doctrine abnormal? Has the cult come to the doctrine? Why are people in the world pointing a finger towards the church? That is because we are not dwelling on his word and we do not love one another. You have all accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That means you promised you would be a disciple of Jesus. So if this is in fact true, please live according to his word from now on. When the world is moving and doing things that may be right according to their own values, please do not move along with them. Instead, abide in the truth. That's the duty of being a disciple. This concludes today's episode. I thank you for listening, and God bless. us that if there is a part of us that is causing us to sin, then discard that part fearlessly. He tells us to throw away that part of our lives. If we hold on to a part of our lives that causes us to sin, then we will not be able to go into heaven as children of God. Jesus is telling us that we will receive eternal punishment instead. I think that some of us take what Jesus is telling us too lightly. We think, How can a person live without sinning? We try to convince ourselves that it is okay to sin by telling ourselves that everyone out there sins as much as we do. Many times we don't accept our mistakes as sin at all. But Jesus is telling us that this way of thinking is wrong. When we begin to say that it is okay to sin this much, 
or don't accept our sins as sins at all. It is those mistakes that will lead us into hell. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 4 says, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. We should try not to rationalize that our sins are okay, and we should not deal with our sins so lightly. When we face our sins, we must realize that these sins are separating us from Jesus our Lord and should be scared by the fact that it is leading us to eternal punishment. We must fight hard against our sins, even to the point of shedding blood. Are any of you dealing with sin that come easily into your life? If you have come to a point where you are about to give up fighting against these sins, please think again. It is not worth going to hell carrying those sins. It is right for you to fight hard against those sins. You must fight against those sins so as not to become separated from our Lord, even to the point of shedding blood. I hope that all of you are able to accept your sins and repent your sins to God, asking for strength to fight against them. This ends our Unity in Christ program for today. I hope to meet all of you again next week. Have a wonderful week and God bless. Tell me I'm forgiven and loved Cause I hear it from the street corner priestess On how God is loving, how man can be clean But my joy has been on holiday And my peace has almost passed away Tell me I'm forgiven and free Oh, I tried and tried to rectify my hopeless situation But by the lie, I still have work to do Lost its appeal Dirty deeds have done me in Oh, but that can't stop the faithful friend Giving mercy once again As you heal Here it is I'm feeling Oh, oh, oh Oh, I tried and tried to rectify My hopeless situation But I bother My hopeless situation And His blood commands my guilt to leave Now on Calvary I stand Empty pockets, open hands Oh, there is no condemnation For me, Situation, but I 
shout you're forgiven in love Child, you're forgiven and child, you are love Child, you're forgiven in love